0: First season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, I mentioned many times, I found myself mentioning many times, that coming to view the Bible as one story is the single greatest leap in Bible understanding that I ever took. And I can pretty well name the very place and time where it happened. I was sitting in a classroom listening to the excellent lectures on Old Testament theology given by a young Dr. Ken Casillas. Ken has gone from being teacher to friend, and when I saw that he had put out a book precisely on Bible application, I knew that I had to read the book and I had to have him on the podcast to talk through his insights. Ken is bilingual, English and Espanol. He's a sort of bivocational guy too. He's both pastoring and professoring. He's a very gifted man whose gifts I would like to share with you through this interview. Listen in. Dr. Ken Casillas, welcome to the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Uh, Just tell us a little bit about yourself, tell us what you do, where you serve Christ's body.
1: Well, since 2001, I have been teaching at Bob Jones University in seminary, and I focus on the area of Old Testament interpretation. So I teach here at the seminary a variety of courses that have to do with uh, Old Testament introduction, uh, Old Testament theology, the exposition of uh, various books or sections of the Old Testament, and then in the area of, of biblical languages uh, focus on Hebrew and sometimes Aramaic as well. Uh, then for about the last 10 years, I've been pastoring a church in Spartanburg, South Carolina, which is about half an hour away from the campus. And uh, the name of the church is Cleveland Park Bible Church. And Really I'm thankful for the opportunity to kind of wed together Uh, These two ministries, um, they they, they really help and support each other in different ways. And to be able to give the students, especially, a a real-life perspective on what uh, things are like in local church ministry.
0: You were one of my professors back in seminary, and I just have to ask you this question. Back in 2003, Old Testament theology, who was your best redheaded student? Do you remember?
1: Well, I would think it would have to be Mark Ward.
0: Great! Fantastic! Okay, well, Dr. Casillas, the reason that I wanted to talk to you on the Bible Study Magazine podcast was both, uh, let me give several reasons, one is that you were an excellent lecturer and that class, Old Testament Theology, I've talked a lot about it in articles I've written on the Logos blog. It, it constituted the single greatest leap forward in my understanding of the Bible that I ever had. You know, we have these incremental uh, uh, times of growth, but that was one time when things just really clicked as to what is the purpose of having the Old Testament, the Old Covenant uh, in the pages of my Bible. Um, another reason is that you have written a book beyond chapter and verse— The Theology and Practice of Biblical Application, and I don't have a physical copy because I asked you for a digital one. It's easier for me to read, Uh, and I did read it and really enjoyed it. It fits very well the theme of this second season of the podcast where we're talking about application. Let me just ask you this. Why did you feel the need to write this particular book?
1: Well, there are some good books Uh, recent books on this topic, but it did seem that overall, in terms of uh, resources that are available, uh, this was an area that had not gotten a great deal of of attention, at least not in in this kind of detail. Uh, The other thing is, I um, am, am used to having conversations with young people who grew up in conservative circles, where there was a lot of emphasis on holiness, a lot of emphasis on obedience of Scripture, and a lot of emphasis on application of Scripture. And the questions that they tend to have, the struggles that they tend to have, really uh, processing some of the ideas or positions that they grew up uh, with, uh, I felt like uh, there really was a need to to step back and just talk about the overall concept of application, Uh, what is its basis, also what are some of its limitations and challenges, and then to try to get some practical help and how to go about doing that.
0: Yeah, originally in my notes preparing for this season of the podcast, I put you down under this title, Illegitimate Applications of Scripture, not because you do that, but because I know you handled that in your book. But as I read your book, I thought, we can't just talk about that. There are so many other good things that you had to say about application more generally, but we are going to talk about that later. I want to start um, with... The uh, a little observation I made after I was reading your book. It, one of the most helpful points that anyone ever made for me about application was the simple and obvious point that hadn't occurred to me until then, and you bring this out in your book, that God in the Bible purposefully leaves some application to our scripturally informed judgment by giving us general commands. Don't be conformed to the world. That's just one of many. Talk to me about some of those commands and what they teach us about applying the Bible.
1: Well, this is a great uh, and foundational point uh, to cover I often liken it to the whole process of growing up from childhood to adulthood. That there's a point at which, uh, theoretically, ideally, uh, children ought to be arriving at their own ability to make decisions so that their parents aren't having to hold their hand all the time and tell them what to do. Uh, not that they're going to discard everything that they were taught before, but maturity is, in part, moving away from someone having to spell everything out and uh, arriving at the conviction that certain decisions have to be made and arriving at the ability, the skill, to make them for yourself, um, bringing to bear everything you've received and, and putting it into practice. And I think that is a big part of Christian or spiritual maturity as well. Uh, the way that the Bible approaches it. You see that uh, in a sense, as you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, uh, there are specific commands in both Testaments, but there are way fewer in the New Testament and more of these general categorical imperatives that are ultimately meaningless. They will have little or no impact on our lives if we're not figuring out what that actually looks like in our in our situation, in our culture, in our society, and so you can you can go through really the the second half of many of the uh, Pauline epistles, for example, and Paul will say things like, um, "Love is the fulfillment of the law," or "Present yourself uh, to the Lord as a living sacrifice." Um, he will uh, talk about uh, let's say in Ephesians chapter four, chapter five, about not going along with the currents of the world that is under the influence of Satan. Of course, there's a lot of emphasis on love and loving your neighbor as yourself. And uh, whether it's, it's positive that way or negative as far as things to avoid. You know, I think about uh, Ephesians once again, and he says, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. Well, unless you define in your language and in your culture, what is and what isn't corrupt communication, uh, you're not going to be able to do anything with that particular command. And sometimes the answer is obvious, sometimes not so much, sometimes in that case, since we're dealing with language that changes from time to time, uh, there may be some adaptations along the way. But as you, as you read through particularly the application sections of the epistles, you're going to run across uh, quite a few of these uh, commands that require... Uh, the reader to figure out, in his situation, what that actually looks like practically.
0: You gave some technical terms that I've seen elsewhere that, you know, like all labels, can just help us uh, point to and summarize truth. The one that I think you used for the concept that we're talking about now is paradigmatically. We're looking at Scripture and looking for paradigms, uh, general truths that we can apply and that are meant to be applied generally. Is that an accurate way to use your word there?
1: Sure, I think so. Uh, Paradigm is kind of a fancy word for the idea of a pattern that you're going to see sometimes stated in general terms. But uh, even in the case of a highly specific statement of Scripture, uh, typically we can infer from that a more general pattern or paradigm that then we bring to bear on other specifics that may not be mentioned in, in the passage.
0: Two other technical terms that you brought up were apodictic versus casuistic law. Do you think that those technical terms are worth knowing for the average church-going Christian? How do they help us?
1: Well, whether or not you remember the, the terms uh, or how to pronounce them, uh, they are concepts that are, are hard to get around and that you you probably noticed without necessarily Having a label for them. Yeah, having a label for it. So as you think about the Old Testament law, there's there's clearly a difference between the Ten Commandments, which are these very broad moral statements, do this, don't do this. Some of them had to do with your actions. Some of them have to do with uh, avoidance of an action. Uh, The Tenth Commandment about coveting has to do with more of a heart issue. But but they're very general, and, and, and they're gonna be fleshed out in a lot of different ways in the circumstances of life. So that would be an, those would be examples of the apodictic category. The casuistic, uh, related to the word case, and you can think in terms of case law as is used in uh, the legal system today. And these are highly specific uh, to some scenario in the nation of Israel. Uh, typically set up in a kind of an if-then structure where the law will say, if this happens, then this is the penalty, or if this happens, this is what ought to be done to to respond to it. And they they are highly specific, highly related to the culture and the mission of Israel, but it's especially there that we have to uh, consider the the paradigm uh, as to what moral idea or pattern or value is being taught through those specifics and it really helps to combine the two categories they really are mutually reinforcing and mutually informing
0: you're an old testament guy um how do I apply the Psalms? And let me give a specific example. You know, David prays all these prayers, and we have these superscriptions that give us very specific situations in which David found himself when he prayed these prayers. Here's one Psalm 54. He prays, O oh God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. This is the ESV. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life, they do not set God before themselves. So, you know, let's say I don't have any enemies. No strangers are rising against me. No ruthless men are seeking my life, not even any ruthless women for that matter. How do I apply these words to my life?
1: Well, I want to give several answers to that. One is that it may be someday you will have an enemy, perhaps not in exactly those specific situations that David faced, uh, but this might become a very personal thing. So one of the, one of the wonderful uh, things about the Bible is that as you reread it, uh, it, it can strike you differently depending on your circumstance. And what at one point in life didn't seem that relevant at some later point might actually speak very directly to something that you're that you're facing. So that would be one one idea to uh, to keep in mind. Um, uh, at the same time, I think there are broader truths that are uh, behind those kinds of prayers. Uh, David is appealing to the Lord because he believes God is a God of justice. And ultimately, even though he is personally very touched and personally hurt by whatever happened, uh, what he is concerned about is for the Lord to be true to his just character. And even though we may not personally be facing some kind of injustice at the moment, uh, there there are people who are. And a prayer like that could be something that we would appropriately pray for other people that have experienced uh, some kind of uh, unfair treatment or suffering or abuse. So we can pick up those words and use them, maybe not personally, but by way of intercession. And certainly, even if we're not ourselves connected at the moment with somebody like that, we, we hear all the time about, uh, unjust suffering in the world. And so there's a place for praying for God's global justice to be carried out. Uh, it will happen to some degree in this life, but Jesus taught us to pray that his kingdom would come ultimately where all these things would be made right. And And I would, I would say that a prayer like what you quoted there could be tied into praying for Christ's kingdom to come, that he would uh, deal with injustice throughout the world so that Um, Righteousness is established uh, through the entire globe as as he designed uh, ultimately and and for his glory.
0: And I might not personally have enemies, especially those who are literally physically trying to hurt me, Um, but Christians elsewhere in the world do have those enemies, and that's something I can pray for them, even if there isn't direct, immediate application, you know, a direct parallel. I believe that Tyndale's plowboy, the average person, should have the Bible in contemporary language. That Bible translations, therefore, are key tools for the Great Commission that Christ gave us to disciple the nations to teach them, to observe everything Christ has commanded us. I believe that regular Christians can and must read and study their Bibles on their own. I believe that we're not on our own, that the Spirit will guide us into all truth. And I believe that one of the Spirit's most important tools for doing this is other human teachers, despite our own failures. I believe in Bible study. And all this is why I find myself constantly turning to Logos Bible software in all my work. It makes the Bible text accessible to me at a level of detail I just don't get elsewhere, and it also gives me quick and inexpensive access to the work of many, many careful Bible teachers. The new Logos 9 now makes it even easier for me to do this, and I want to show you what I mean. If I type in any Bible passage into the passage guide, I get a prioritized list of links to all my commentaries. Logos 9 is all about small improvements that add up to something bigger. And now, in this new release, Logos 9, Logos gives me extra information about all my many commentaries, including even what denomination their authors come from. This is information that does help me in my Bible study. I'm all the time doing this, checking on my commentators, getting help from them, understanding Scripture. Logos 9 has other small but big improvements like Dark Mode for all you dark mode people out there. I'll never understand you, but more power to you. It has the totally revamped Factbook, a great place to start your study on all kinds of biblical topics. Christianity can get unmoored from the Bible, and what a horror it is when that happens. Don't let it happen to you. Use the best Bible study tools there are. Use Logos 9. Go to Logos.com and check out some of our base packages. Download our mobile app and start using the tools there. If you listen to a podcast about Bible study, you're probably pretty serious about it. You should not remain content with the free resources available on the internet. Check out the new Logos 9. Now um, I want to talk some more about these general commands. and You have a great quote from Don Carson. I'm going to read something he wrote that you quoted in his book, Praying with Paul there are countless decisions in life where it is not a question of making a straightforward decision between right and wrong. What you need is extraordinary discernment that helps you perceive how things differ and then make the best possible choice. Um, And he's talking about Philippians 1, 9 through 11. This is a passage that uh, a pastor that pastored both you and me in the past brought out to my attention. And I've, I've been thinking about this passage for years since he drew some uh, applications out of it. And I can still quote Philippians 1, 9 through 9-11 from memory, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more with real knowledge and all discernment. Can you unpack what that verse tells us about application? He, Both Paul and, uh, less importantly, though still wonderfully, D.A. Carson bring up this matter of discernment. How does this passage help us apply?
1: Well, discernment is a major aspect of application, and it speaks to taking the truths of Scripture, whether they be plainly stated in categorical terms or whether they be paradigms that we're inferring, and bringing them to bear on uh, matters that are not as clear-cut. And most of the time, that is where our debates are, that's where our struggle is. Uh, Things that are very plainly stated in the Bible, we don't tend to struggle with figuring them out, but it's in the area of here we are in the 21st century world dealing with things that didn't exist in the past, and how do we bring this ancient book to bear on all of those specifics? Uh, Discernment is the skill to make distinctions or to put things to the test on the basis of biblical teaching uh, in order to figure out best we can, what would honor God in a particular situation. And this is where the Lord, by His Spirit, uh, works to mature us. It's not something that happens overnight. It's something that is a process. It's something that i would be prayed for. That, that statement in Philippians is the context of a prayer. Paul is asking God to work this into his people. It doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen just because you know Bible verses uh, it happens through experience. Of course, we can learn uh, from the experience of other believers as well. And so it, it's a vital part of the process of application. and and yet our, our tendency often is to be satisfied with the bare minimum of what the Bible explicitly says and miss this whole other category that Paul says is so essential for these people. And actually what he prays there, uh, is in the area of love. He, he's, he would, I'm right. sure, work out discernment in every area, but his prayer is particularly that your love may abound more and more in discernment. So, so the point is, we might say we know someone and we love them, but just because we have that affection or that concern in our hearts for them doesn't mean we automatically know how to show it given who they are, given their circumstances, given their needs. Sometimes we might be driven by just emotion. Sometimes we might be driven by what we might feel is loving in a particular case. Uh, Sometimes we might not be thinking on, on the highest level as to what is to their best and ultimate good, as opposed to maybe something they would like immediately. So even in our relationships, to show love, whether it be to our our spouses, our children, our friends, our church members, uh, we're going to need this skill to apply biblical love. And of course, as you read on in Philippians, you find that Paul is is, uh, urging these people uh, in some specifics on what that would look like in their case, whether it would be chapter two, uh, dying to self and sacrificing for the benefit of others, whether it be chapter four, uh, working to resolve difficulties between a couple of ladies there in the church uh, I see those as illus- illustrations of uh, using discernment to figure out what's loving in that particular assembly at that time.
0: Yeah, that passage, Philippians 1, 9-11, is so interesting because the, the structure of it makes um, Discernment, the ultimate end of love, one of the ultimate ends that you—he prays that their love might abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that they can approve things that are excellent. So it's not—it's like not everything out there, and this is something Carson says in the quote that you. Uh, brought out. There's more to it than I read. Not everything lines up neatly into the good and bad categories. You've got stuff that's good and stuff that's very good, stuff that's bad, stuff that's very bad. You want, when you can, to choose not just the things that are good, but those that are excellent. And Paul says that that's going to spring out of your loves. Would it be accurate to say that people who don't love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who don't love their neighbors as their, as themselves, are not going to be able to apply the Bible with discernment to their lives. Would you agree with that?
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, another theme in the book, as I talk about application, is the importance of the heart. And what, what drives us to make our choices is, is at a foundational level and is the, the source or the fountain of what, of what comes out. And, and yet even in the process of trying to figure out what's going on in my heart, the degree of my love or the object of my love, that in itself is an exercise in application and discernment. I've got I've to read myself and compare or contrast my affections, my desires with the values of God's Word and to the degree that, that they are not equivalent to, turn, to identify those things, to turn from them, to, to grow in, in love and in virtue. And so all these things are part of the process.
0: Yeah, this very morning in our church's, you know, Friday morning men's book study, we were talking about Proverbs 15.8 that says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. So, you can do the right thing, give a sacrifice. I mean, the Bible says do it, but here's the Bible saying that if your loves are in the wrong place, then your protests that, well, I'm obeying, they're empty. Your motivation is part of what makes an act righteous. Now, let me pick up a thread that we had earlier in the conversation. I asked you, why did you pick this topic to write on? And, you know, I was one of those students who had questions about the rules that I was handed, especially back in high school. Um, And it was a very attractive, let's just say, uh, line of argumentation among people my age, and I have to assume you went through a similar process, to say um, our parents and our teachers were legalistic and therefore to dismiss the things that they said we ought to do. And when I read this sentence from your book that I'm about to read, I, I think that maybe you were talking about this sort of thing, The possibility of legalism, you wrote, applications can end up undermining the authority of Scripture. You called this a danger, and you devoted some space to it in your book. When and how can that happen? Am am I drawing a connection accurately between that statement in your book and that thread earlier in our conversation?
1: Yes, definitely. That, That line was just acknowledging, while I was trying to emphasize the importance, the need for application, uh, acknowledging that we can really mess it up to the to the point where we are undermining or in effect undermining uh, God's God's Word or, or the authority of Scripture it's bearing on our lives. And then uh, after I, I developed the need for it, later on in the book, I have a couple chapters that are delving into this whole question of legalism, what it is, what it isn't, uh, how hopefully to avoid it. And so I, I do develop that at length. But I think, to answer your question, uh, we have a couple of, of great examples in the ministry of Jesus as he's interacting with uh, the leaders of, of the Jewish people at the time. And and one of the things I do in the book is is, is try to learn about application from the way that the Bible itself applies earlier Scripture. And, and that's really the heart of, of the argument, that when we come to applying, uh, it isn't just a matter of, well, I've got this old book and, and if it's going to have any effect on my life, I need to figure out how to, how to connect the dots to the present. Actually, the Bible itself in, in multiple places, uh, the authors of Scripture, the characters of Scripture are taking earlier revelation and they are bringing it to bear on new circumstances. And you get into a lot of this with the ministry of Jesus. Uh, in his case, a lot of it has to do with correcting misapplications. And these are the kinds of examples that, that would answer your, your question. Uh, the big one would be in the area of the Sabbath, where right. uh, they, I'm sure, originally uh, had the right motive to obey the fourth commandment and to honor the Lord by keeping the Sabbath. But so many so many applications or rules were added to that as to uh, you, you must do this, you must not do this, to bear this out to the nth degree, uh, to the point where as Jesus comes along and he is uh, ministering alongside his disciples, uh, they, they weren't even allowed to, to pick up some, some, some grain as they're walking through a field. And Jesus says, well, what you've done is, uh, one of the problems with that approach is that you have actually invalidated something biblical by trying to apply something else biblical. And particularly the fact that the Sabbath was made for the benefit of man. And it was made for people to, to receive even physical refreshment and, and profit from it. But here you are, you're not letting them uh, just casually pick up a uh, little something along the way to, to have a snack or whatever. And so, so that's the case, uh, the way he talks to them about their handling of the Corbin, as well, where uh, let's say somebody was on the outs with his family or was just really greedy, Uh, he could could declare that his assets were willed to the temple as an act of worship to the Lord, but continue to use whatever of that he wanted to during his life. And yet, because it was willed to the temple, he wasn't going to be expected or required to give it to his parents. Uh, or to, to use it to provide for them, it becomes a way to, to use one good thing to kind of undermine another thing that's not as convenient or desirable for you.
0: Yeah, you're making void the Word of God by your tradition, he says. So you can do this by accretions, by adding so many fences around the law that ultimately you undermine the purpose of the law, like the Sabbath command to rest or uh, you could do it the way they did with Korban, which is a, a more direct, you know, and run. Yeah, that that has to be intentional. It's hard to imagine someone accidentally, you know, making that kind of mistake. Now- right. um, it's
1: more nefarious than what was going on with the Sabbath.
0: Exactly. Now, I, I was a little bit equivocal. I, I, I'm self-reflecting here in my last question because I talked about young people who dismiss what their parents say, And what their parents taught them, and I'm a parent now. I think that's bad. You know, you don't just want to dismiss what your parents say, Um, but there are rules that I was given. Let's just say when I was in high school that I no longer follow. And I, as I've grown, of course, I've observed churches that, you know, tend toward different poles. So on the one hand, would be yeah, this is the, the the ditch that my. Churches in my youth would tend to fall into this is their temptation. I'm not saying they were in the ditch, but they, you know, were toward it. Would be what pet, what uh, C.S. Lewis called observing petty traditional abstinences, and you gather a lot of people together who kind of share the same petty traditional abstinences, and you have a church. I mean, that's a really cynical way of putting it. That's an extreme. That that. That wasn't really true, that's just the ditch that we tended toward. And then you've got churches that are more on the antinomian or libertine side, where the idea that anyone would ever come to anyone else in the church and say, You know, watching Game of Thrones uh, with all of its you know nude rape scenes is probably not a good idea, considering what the New Testament says about not allowing even a hint of immorality to enter your life, you know, the the very idea that someone would say that, you know, the the legalism alarms would go off and everybody would run outside the building for, you know, a fire drill. Um, How do you as a pastor uh, create a church community that is neither ruled by petty traditional abstinences, you know, these legalistic accretions on, you know, good commands of Scripture, uh, nor is it so libertine and antinomian that it would just be foreign to the culture for anyone to ever try to apply the Bible to someone else's life, and perhaps even their own. Sure.
1: Well, I wouldn't say that's uh, something I've necessarily mastered. It's, it's a challenging process, and it's something you just are ongoing, ongoingly dealing with. Uh, but I would say one of the big helps to that is to be committed to a regular expository ministry of Scripture. And one of the benefits of that in preventing the legalist side of things that you've mentioned is that it, it kind of forces you to, if you're being responsible with the text and you are just from week to week covering the, the following passage in the book of the Bible that you're dealing with, it keeps you from having a ministry that's oriented to, to hobby horses and these these personal or even petty positions taking the front and center position. Like That's what defines your ministry, and that's this is what we're about. If you're disciplined to just keep working through the scriptures, you're going to end up uh, handling a, a huge variety of themes, all of which are going to have their application, but it's going to prevent you from kind of obsessing over any one thing. Uh, I think another uh, element of that process is in your preaching to try to illustrate for people the very, the very uh, method of application, that I'm, the sort of thing I'm trying to lay out in this book, where uh, through the, the regular preaching ministry, uh, it is very evident to them that you have given careful attention to the original historical meaning And then as an act of of application, as an act of pastoral leadership, uh, you are guiding people through a process to where it's not just, it's not about laying out rules because thus set the pastor, but it is inculcating inculcating in them a mindset and an approach for how they are to deal with the Bible. And I believe that if you have somebody who is under that kind of ministry for a, a, the same period of time, it's going gonna, it's gonna to do something as to how they think about the Bible. If they see it illustrated again and again, uh, they're going to realize that the value of that, and they're going to be working to apply the, the Scriptures for themselves. And I think that, obviously, is the path to maturity, but it keeps, you know, from the necessity of having some kind of heavy-handed authoritarian situation where uh, one man or one group just decides it for everybody, but the, but everybody is growing. Everybody sees the the need for and the way how to apply uh, the scriptures. Maybe on the other side, the uh, the, the libertine side. Uh, one of the things that I that I try to do in the book at the beginning to lay uh, just a very broad foundation for everything is to explain that the gospel is not just about our righteous standing with God. That, that in addition to declaring us righteous in Christ, the gospel is actually bringing us into a process of, of sanctification that requires us to apply the Scriptures to the details of our lives. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of times the antinomian position um, kind of bandies about the, the word gospel as though they're about the gospel in this freedom, and there is a right freedom in the gospel. But the gospel message, as you as you look the way the word gospel is used in Scripture and everything that's tied to it in the New Testament, it really is uh, something that drives us to holiness, that that takes seriously the the details of our lives, and 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 wants by the grace of God to. Uh, to see our practice conform to our position, so I think a right preaching of the gospel is is one of the big answers to to the problem of antinomianism.
0: Yeah, I have read a book a couple of years ago by a sociologist who it seemed to me must have been an evangelical Christian. I couldn't tell if he still was or not. Uh, I sort of suspect that he still was, but he was so much in academic descriptive mode in this book that I wasn't sure. The book was about how evangelical communities, namely churches, apply the Bible, how they use the Bible. And It seemed to me that he took a number of examples of simplistic or facile or unsophisticated application of Scripture and used that, frankly, to mock you know, in a subtle academic way, Uh, not that I'm against subtlety or academics, Um, the churches that he'd observed, and to question the whole idea that you can take an ancient text and accurately apply it or use it today. Of course, at the end of the book, there's no answer for how can this be done rightly in churches because he's saying, "Oh, I'm just here in academic description mode," Um, and and that is also how he treated the Bible. It's it's as if what he expected, you know, sort of reading between the lines, what he expected churches to do was to be in academic description mode, just say what this text meant back then, but don't bridge the gap between. The Bible and theology or between the Bible and my daily life. What are some hints within the Bible or some direct teachings within the Bible that show that his merely descriptive or even almost like history of religions approach, reproach, or we're just showing how different communities, interpretive communities have accepted and used this text? How, how, how Where do we hear from the Bible that that isn't right, that we actually can and should use the Bible in our churches nearly, you know, well, 2,000 years after the last pages were written.
1: Well, that was another of the big burdens of the book is to lay out the Bible's own case for application, uh, sometimes in the way of examples of biblical writers applying earlier texts, and sometimes in in just very direct statements. So some of these are very well known, but people may not have uh, connected it to this point. Uh, even something like 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, where Paul is talking to Timothy about the Old Testament scriptures that he would have grown up with, and he is, he is telling him that that is profitable for teaching and instruction of the righteous and so forth. There's, there's already a huge time gap between the writings of Moses and the life of Timothy, and yet the, the collection of books that we call the Old Testament, Moses uh, at the foundation of that, uh, Paul says still has authority. And, and here's Timothy, even though he was uh, half Jew, he is working with the, the people of God, the church in a Gentile context. And, and yet he, Paul is making that point, not just so that Timothy as the man of God would experience that, but he turns around in chapter 4 and he says, now you preach the word and reprove, rebuke, exhort. Those those are parallel words to what the Scriptures were doing in his own life. He now turns around in the proclamation of Scripture and and starts to deal with the people, including Gentiles, that are before him in his ministry. So uh, that's kind of a classic text on that point, but uh, there are a lot of others uh, that I deal with. Um, Back in the law, it's interesting when, when Moses is talking Uh, to the people of God about the law that he's giving them, there's this emphasis on this is not just for us today, but it's for your children, and it's for later generations. In other words, he assumes that this document has intergenerational authority and that what it is declaring to the original audience still is the governor for later audiences as well. And that's right at the beginning of the Old Testament, and it's the assumption all the way through as you read on uh, the historical books, what are they doing? They're constantly assessing what some generation of people has done, whether it's a king or 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 some other person, on the basis of what Moses said way back then, and assuming that that they're bound to that. And then coming into the New Testament, obviously you have the the ministry of Christ and uh, passages like St. Timothy 3, uh, also Romans 15, uh, where, uh, and 1 Corinthians 10, which talk about these things were written for our instruction, for our admonition, they're examples to us. Uh, and really, if we're not, in my mind, if we're not going to take those passages seriously, the only option is to say the Bible is just a historical record of interesting information about what people in the past it's believed. It's a dead letter. Function. In any way, as a uh, a religious or theological authority for us in any meaningful way, we've got to go through a process of application.
0: you know um, it's not just unsophisticated people in random churches visited by this sociologist who can be facile in their use of the Bible. it's uh, sociologists themselves. I've seen people treat the Bible, you know, from with such an academic distance that um, even if they have some kind of Christian connection, I, I liken it to the uh, the teenager whose father has written a, a list of rules for use of the car and put it on a post-it note on the fridge, and the. One of the rules is don't go driving out after 10. And this teenager's friends have seen these rules. And sure enough, they're out driving after 10. And one of them says to the teen whose dad made the rules, you know, what's going on here? Why did you, why are you breaking the rule? Did your dad say don't go out after 10 driving? And a teenager says, oh, that wasn't my dad. That was a post-it note on the fridge. Um, If we believe that the Bible is God's word, then he's, He is the one author who, in all of history who is able to address all of history and to anticipate all of the ways in which not only the Bible can be used, but in the ways in which it should be used. Yeah, I just want to stop for a second and just hold this up in front of people beyond chapter and verse, the theology and practice of biblical application, and say, there's tons of this insight in this book, and you should get it. Um, I don't get a... um, a commission on selling this book, by the way. I actually believe it's really valuable. And that central insight that you had, let's see how the Bible applies to the Bible. Let's let's look for examples within Scripture from the New Testament using the Old Testament, even though that's difficult, or the way the Bible is structured uh, that teaches us about application. Let, let me round this out with um, two more questions. One, this is going to be really easy for you. And the second, it's going to be hard for everybody else, but easy for you. Okay, here's the first one. We have all these stories in the Bible. The Old Testament is just full of narrative. That's the main genre uh, throughout much of the Old Testament. We have the historical books, their narrative. I heard an author say one time that people sometimes want to wake up and have a general sitting at the end of their bed telling them, do this, do that. But the way the Bible actually approaches us is often you wake up and here's a storyteller at the end of your bed saying, once upon a time, okay, not that these are fairy tales, they actually happen, but you know what I mean. Here's a narrative. Um, how do we apply narratives when they, when they don't give their lessons explicitly, as occasionally they do, but when they don't, how do we apply them?
1: Yes, uh, great question, because you are dealing roughly with about half the content of the Bible written in that way um, to some degree. Um, I think we want to avoid some of the dangers that are often committed with narrative. This is kind of a qualification before I say what I want to say. Uh, With something like moralization, where you assume that just because uh, somebody is in, uh, some, some character is in a story, and he does something that at some level could be called good, then the point is be like him, or if he does something that in some way is not good, the story, the the point is don't be like him. That's uh, that's simplistic, and I think that we want to be careful about not reading ourselves into these stories immediately and looking for some moral out of every event or every person that the story talks about, uh, but when Paul makes comments like these things were written as our examples, he's thinking uh, in First Corinthians 10 about narrative. And so there is something there. And that, that in our day, has, has sometimes gotten lost in the shuffle, as we have been warning people about moralization and this kind of thing, uh, almost throwing out the, the, the window altogether the concept that there is some relevant practical truth to be learned from these stories. Uh, I think one of the important parts of the process uh, is to keep any individual story connected with the overall storyline of the Bible
0: as a whole. I have to stop you right there and say, Dr. Casillas, that is in one sentence what I didn't know before I took your class in 2003, and it's what I did know after I took the class. So I just have to say right now, thank you for that and continue.
1: that's really encouraging, and that, that really is an emphasis that Uh, We hear, and and I know others are trying to make in this whole area of biblical theology where uh, any passage in the Bible is somewhere along the line of a bigger story. And the bigger story is not in the first place about us. It's about God. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about uh, Satan uh, working to seduce the human race to rebel against God's authority. God, by His grace, working to restore us back under His authority and using us to serve Him in the world and so forth. And the work of Christ, of course, the heart of, of that redemption. And so we've got to, to, to work to feed all these other stories into that and see how they are connected, uh, lest we lose sight of the main point while we're looking for a lot of personal application. So that's foundational. We have to come back to that again again. But then when we're looking at individual stories, I think the, uh, one of the big keys is the area of plot. And just learning whatever we can about how stories tend to be structured, uh, that's going to drive you to what would be the main theological point. And you're, you're appreciating whatever tension or conflict is there. You're appreciating how that, that builds up often to some kind of a turning point. Uh, what the resolution is. Uh, Just simple questions about plot are going to get you at what is the main idea of a story. And and then sometimes the author will throw in little little hints. Some books do this more than others. But another exercise in biblical theology is looking for those theologically explicit statements where uh, the writer inserts himself, gives some of his viewpoint, and and makes a very direct statement about God, or direct statement about God's law or God's salvation, or something like that. So particularly when you see that those kinds of terms or phrases repeated again and again, then you know the author is wanting you to pay attention and use that as a clue as well.
0: That's great. Yeah, anybody who uh, can should just listen to your lectures on the Old Testament. And I know you've got sermons online. Um, I happen to know your website pretty well, and there's some great sermons on there, ClevelandParkBible.org. Okay, I promised one more hard question uh, that I think you will answer easily. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask it in hopefully not a confusing way. So let's imagine there's this communist regime that tries to you know, make a restrictive law that basically eliminates Bible publishing, and they say that, you know, no book, you know, more than 800,000 words or 600,000 words can be published, and that eliminates the possibility of Bible publishing. So, in order to have Bibles, you're going to have to drop some of the pages. You know, would it be okay if we dropped some of the genealogies in First Chronicles? Can you tell us? Wow. So,
1: we have to trim the
0: Bible down um, the, is that the idea? The, well, yeah. The question is, those genealogies, do we really need them, and what use are they?
1: Well, I will confess uh, that I, I struggle with this part of Scripture, just like anybody else. Uh, in my own reading right now, I'm uh, into Second Chronicles, but before I got there, I had to go through the first nine chapters of First Chronicles, and it's just a big, long list of names. Uh, There is value to it, though, even though we're not getting some individual nugget out of every name. uh, The value is uh, very connected to understanding that the purpose of the book as a whole. So let's take Chronicles, for example. It's written to uh, the people of God coming out of exile who are restarting this nation basically from scratch. And they need Yes, organization, they need some sense of structure and who these different tribes are and particularly the role of the Levites as the leaders in the temple and so forth. So there's a kind of an informational part to it. But there, there's something more foundational where the author is making the point, look, God has had a, a people from the very beginning, and he traces it all the way back to Adam. Chronicles is like rebooting the whole Old Testament uh, after the main story has been told. And so he goes all the way back to the beginning and traces it down through selected lines. And he's making the point, look, you today are the, the present installment of this long line of the people of God that he has been using to advance his plan of redemption. You're, not, you're really not an upstart. It, this is not some kind of a random impulsive thing on the part of God. Well, let's see if we can you know try something new now. Uh, there is this this long line of blessing that includes all of these historic individual people that had names and that had families and 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 learning something about the genealogy gives these people a sense of their rootedness and actually we we ought to understand that because in our day, you have all of these, uh, these ancestry-type services. You can even send in your DNA sample to have it tested, because people are really wanting to know, you know, where did I come from and who are my ancestors and what were some of the main events in their lives or the main traditions of this family? Or as much as I can find out about my ancestry gives me a sense of significance and rootedness in my life today. That's really the point of the genealogies as a whole.
0: So there is an application to make from them, and the only way you can really do that is by understanding the place in the story that they hold. That is so helpful, and I know we could go on to many different portions of the Old Testament and ask, how is this useful? What is the application that we could make? But I'm going to have to end it here. You've given us so much value. Uh, Dr. Casillas. And in your book, there's even more. I really encourage people to go out and get the book. I just want to thank you for your ministry to us during this time. Um, Thank you for the ministry that you've had in my life. I want to say that too. Is there any final word you want to give people when it comes to application? Because our mutual mentor, I know, doesn't end his sermons with application. The last step in the process is exhortation. So what are you going to exhort us to do going away?
1: Well, uh, I mentioned at the outset that a lot of this had to do with answering questions from young people. And I would say that uh, a main factor that ought to drive us to pay careful attention to this whole process, even when we face questions that are hard to answer, even when we really have to stretch ourselves to study about logic and hermeneutics and whatever else, uh, is the next generation. Um going back to Paul and Timothy, he, he exhorted Timothy to find faithful men to whom he could entrust uh, what he had received and so that this whole process can continue generation after generation. Uh, that passage itself is a, is a text that speaks to the idea of application. But my point now is that it's not just about me and my life. It's not just about me figuring out what I'm supposed to do. Uh, it, is, it is vital for the preparation of the next generation that we equip them with these tools, that hopefully they don't have to go through some of the angst or struggles that we went through. They're going to have their own struggles, but at least we're doing what we can to equip them in order to take the Word of God and bring them to bear on situations that probably we have no idea that they're going to face someday. So there's a lot at stake in this process. And I would urge us to think not just about ourselves, but about uh, later generations as well.
0: That's excellent. Um, My later generations are currently above me, traipsing around on the second floor. I can hear them. Thank you for this. Thank you for your time. Thank you for writing the book. And thank you for coming on the Bible Study Magazine podcast.
1: Sure thing. It's been a privilege. And I wish you the best as you carry on for the Lord.
0: Thank you. For joining us for the Bible Study Magazine podcast, our audio/video technicians are Jack Underwood and Brandon Van Beek. I'm your host, Mark Ward, editor in chief of Faith Life's Bible Study Magazine. I hope you'll pick up my respected friend and teacher Ken Cassius's book, Beyond Chapter and Verse: The Theory and Practice of Biblical Application. It's available on various Faith Life platforms such as Logos Bible Software and wherever good books by my favorite professors are sold. You won't be disappointed. I hope also that you'll subscribe to the Bible Study Magazine podcast or to the magazine itself. We're just here to help you study the Bible with the best tools available.